You're listening to WJMF Radio, the beat of Bryant. What is going on, you guys? Welcome back to Down to the Wire. I'm your host, Brian Cost, and today I have a great episode in store for you guys. We're going to be breaking down the Celtics game five victory over the Miami Heat, as well as talking about the rise of Trevor's story. Uh, he was, I was criticizing him pretty heavily, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks and, you know, he's really come on into the scene. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, this is going to be a very Celtics centric episode. And uh, with that being said, I wanted to bring someone onto the show who knows a great deal about the Boston Celtics. Uh, he has, he has developed quite a following for himself over on TikTok. He now has over 60 thousand followers on over on the app and he has just become an incredible creator over there uh so without any further ado hailing uh you know what well, please welcome to the show mr ian and angelo uh ian welcome to the show thanks a lot brian i'm happy to be here man absolutely man i'm glad to have you on the show uh you know obviously the celtics game last night was awesome uh you know gonna be great to break it down today uh first of all what were your thoughts just on you know going into game five what were your expectations for this team Going into game five, honestly and truthfully, I felt there was no excuses for the Celtics. Everyone was playing. I thought they had to win this game. Like, there was no way they couldn't win. And, I mean, like, it just kind of felt like if they won tonight that they would be able to take the series and make the finals. So that's kind of what my expectations were coming into the game. Obviously, you know, the start of the game wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't really up there, but no. It, it wasn't pretty, but they ended up getting the win anyway, and that's kind of all that matters. Yeah, at the end of the day, whether, you know, it if you're trying to think of how it will settle in the minds of those guys, I mean, obviously, you know, they ended up winning by over 10 points. They uh, ended up winning the game uh, 93 to 80 points. Again, holding the heat to 80 points is just – that's an accomplishment in, in and of itself. So being able to do that in this game was very critical for them. Uh What's really what was really poignant uh, for it for me is just the fact that, you know, again, they were at full strength and they showed out, which was so important for us because throughout this entire series, you know, both for the Heat and the Celtics side, you know, you were never really able to see either team at full strength. And obviously the Heat last night were missing Tyler Hero pretty bad. Uh, his shooting probably would have been uh, much needed for them. But, you know, Jason Tatum put in 22 points. Jalen Brown had 25 points. Uh, he was, he was, he was obviously incredible last night. I see, I've seen so many tweets now of people saying that Jalen Brown is the greatest basketball player of all time. That does not know how to dribble. Uh, <laughs> I cannot agree more because, oh my God, it is atrocious. I, oh, mean, I, man. I feel like sometimes there are some times where he's out there and I'm like, dude, I can, I think I can dribble a little better than that. Like just, he's just straight palm down on the basketball. It's like, oh my God, it's, it's a nightmare sometimes, but you know, obviously he did his, he did uh, what he needed to do. Rob Williams was awesome as well. He, uh, he racked up 10 rebounds and then uh, Al Horford, you know, being the, uh, being, you know, the veteran presence, big man down low had 16 and uh, how many rebounds did he have? Seven rebounds. So, you know, he had a great night of his own. So uh, this team is gelling right now. And I, I agree for you as they, you know, move forward into game six. I don't think there are any excuses. I think they got to take it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that's actually pretty funny. The best player did not be able to dribble a basketball because, yeah. I mean, early on, it did not look like, I mean, it did not look good. You know, no. it, they're going to look back on the game and say, oh, look, they shot pretty efficiently and they scored a lot of points. No, if they watched the first half of this game, Jason Tatum, I mean, he looked like pretty injured in the first yeah. half. Like his shoulder looked, you know, pretty bad. And then Jalen Brown just, I think he had like four turnovers in the first quarter alone. And, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where you're just kind of sitting there and you're like, okay, where's the spark coming from? Because Derek White, who credit to him has played insane basketball over the last few games, you know, he's put up 11 points, you know, Robert Williams, he's had 10 points, you know, everyone else is doing their thing. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown got to get involved. Yeah. And, you know, once the third quarter started and they came out the way they did, they looked like they came out like as a different team. So I think that was the most important thing in that game last night was the fact that they were able to step up and not only did Tatum score 22, but he was also able to facilitate. He had nine assists, 12 rebounds. And honestly, the fact that they were just able to take it out after, you know, what looked like, 
maybe another bad game in the first half was pretty resilient on their part. Yeah, I'm glad that they were able to show resiliency and come through there. But that has been an issue I've had with this Celtics team, uh, you know, as we've moved forward. And it's the fact that they don't seem until this game, they didn't really seem like they could, you know, you know, you know, go out, go after, go, go out after a win and have a successful game and really dominate afterwards. It seemed that there was always going to be some sort of a hiccup that they were going to just face after, you know, these blowout victories. Because, you know, while this has been a back and forth series, Ian, I know we were talking about it before the show. This has not been a, you know, relatively close series. You know, I'm not going to even, not even going to say the Celtics have been dominant because they've gotten their doors blown off in some games. So uh, they've had some major collapses. And then, you know, when the Heat have, during the Heat losses, the Miami Heat, you can make the case, just haven't shown up to the facility. They've been that bad uh, in their losses. So, uh, you know, I, w- I was nervous coming into this game, just just knowing the fact that, all right, Jason Tatum, you know, when he has his back against the wall and could be facing a larger deficit, he's going to come out there and possibly drop 40 points. But then in this game, you know, I, it's still an issue that I'm seeing to where, oh, he has the cushion of, of it being tied 2-2. If it, if it p- gets pushed to 3-2 Miami, then he knows he'll have to turn it on and become that other, become that, you know, different animal. I'm glad that he has that dog in him to where he can do that. But I want him to be able to do that after a win and be and be like, oh, you know, we just demoralized you in this game. Let me do it again. Yeah, that was kind of the discourse around Tatum kind of heading into this game. I felt like where, you know, you know how good Jason Tatum is. He's top 10 player in the NBA right now. He's absolutely ascending superstar. And, you know, it is just kind of one of those things where, you know, you don't want to feel too, too comfortable after a win. And that kind of looked it looked like that after the first two wins that the Celtics had. And, you know, and in the first half, like I was saying, I mean, it didn't look good. It kind of looked like they were just kind of resting on their morals there it, and it lo- hoping it lo- for a game six. But absolutely. It literally looks like a just it literally looked like it was going to be the same old show. It was going to be like, oh, the, yep, the Celtics are just doing this thing again. And I was like, and it was frustrating too because of all the guys that we had to being healthy because. You know, it, it was like, oh, no, Smart's out tonight. Oh, Rob Williams is out. And, you know, we were just forced to, you know, figure things out. And, you know, with all of them healthy, I was like, now it's still like we're still having these issues. Like, I was like, this, is gonna, this isn't going to bode well for us. So I was glad that we were able to figure that out. Yeah, the fact that they were able to turn it on in the second half kind of means a lot. Uh, I think I read somewhere that Ime Udoka had like a passionate halftime kind of speech. So that, that probably inspired them to take the series and uh, – or take the game and just come out. I mean, they looked, they honestly looked like a different team in the second half. Like it honestly, it honestly didn't feel close. And I mean, I guess you have to credit the Miami heat because they've been able to game plan after they've been able to get blown out and they've been able to, you know, try to go back to the drawing board and try to stop something. But I honestly, I've said this kind of from the start that the Celtics just kind of feel like the better team overall. And, you know, with Jimmy Butler not being 100% healthy right now, Tyler Hero is not playing, you know, it kind of just feels like the Celtics are destined to kind of win this series in game yeah. six on Friday. Yeah, no, I feel I feel like they need to at this point. I, I know going into game six, uh, they're favored by nine points. Obviously, it's at home. And in my opinion, you got to take game six because I do not want to see a game seven in Miami white out. It's going to. Like, it will be a madhouse down there if you get it to game seven. So I think the Celtics, you need to end it in this game. Do not let them, do not let the Miami Heat back in this series. Just end it now. Definitely. If they can take, if they can take what they found in the second half and, you know, have that from start to finish in game six, I think they easily can take this series. Absolutely. And that's no discredit to the Miami Heat, but... They're just, it just doesn't look like they have enough right now. Jimmy Butler, you know, as great as he is, he does not look healthy. And, you know, it kind of, you know, it kind of sucks for the Heat, but for the Celtics, they have to kind of recognize that and just, you know, they have to just continue to focus and, you know, just take this game, you know, end it and just, you know, game plan for what could be ahead in the finals. Absolutely. So obviously, as we were to move forward into a possible uh, Celtics uh, NBA finals, it'd be their first finals berth since 2010. Uh, Last time again, obviously, was against the L.A. Lakers. They lost to them there. Uh, 
But, you know, more than likely at this point, unless we see the Dallas Mavericks pull a 2004 Red Sox, uh, it's it would most likely be a Boston Celtics versus Golden State Warriors NBA Finals. In that kind of a finals, obviously, Golden State has has, you know, if you want to, you know, you know, check the box for experience, Golden State's getting that, you know, three plus times. I mean, they have been there. They've done that. Uh, they, you know, I think, yeah, it was like, what, five straight finals appearances, you know, when they were on their run. I think technically Clay Thompson is still on track to make his six straight finals because he missed the past two years. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it, it's pretty crazy. So, you know, obviously the Warriors have that experience there. If the Celtics were to advance, how do you think they would fare? I'm not going to lie to you. I think the Celtics match up pretty evenly with the Warriors. And, you know, the whole thing about the Warriors is, you know, they have been there and they have done that. But it kind of feels like outside of, you know, Steph, Draymond and Clay, this is kind of a completely different team than, you know, the dynasty that they were back in like, you know, 2015 to 2019. So, you know, you have guys like Andrew Wiggins now, you know, Kevon Looney. I think he was on that team, but he didn't have a bigger role as he does now. Yeah. You know, and you have a you have a lot of guys like Jordan Poole and, you know, Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga that are coming off the bench who are super young, but they're super talented at the same time. So I think they stack up pretty well with the Celtics. And I think one thing, if Robert Williams is healthy, the Celtics can exploit is the fact that they really don't have a lot of big men outside of Kevon Looney because yeah. I kind of noticed that watching the games versus the Mavericks and it was just like you know outside of Kevon Looney what else do they really have to stop a lob threat like you know Robert Williams or even Al Horford to a certain extent so if the Celtics can attack the paint even a little bit in the NBA finals versus the Warriors I think the Celtics you know they can win this series you know, even though it's a super tall task and it's obviously easier said than done, but they stack up pretty well against the Warriors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know, uh, yeah, because I mean, the Warriors would have had, you know, uh, Wiseman to match up down low, but he's out for the year with his knee injury. So obviously that's uh, that's been a major blow for them. Uh, but I, I don't know how I feel about the Celtics. I mean, you know, so far they've been, you know, I mean, they matched up against the, you know, some former experience in, uh, you know, they had Kevin Durant and Kyrie, you know, two uh, established, you know, you know, veterans who have made it to the finals there. They took care of them handily. And then the Bucks series too. I mean, they were able to, they were able to beat Milwaukee in seven games. So they've had their way with those guys. I just don't know how I feel about the Warriors though, because of just how how consistent they truly were. It wasn't just like a flash in the pan thing, which is kind of what Kyrie, you know, did when he had his finals experience. You know, obviously Kevin Durant had been there longer. And then, you know, you compare that to Giannis too, who made it there one year. And, you know, granted, he had a great series. He played the Suns very well. Uh, but I just don't know. I mean, I think size-wise, I think we're in, I think we're in good shape. I just don't know if there's going to be a mental hurdle for this team because, you know, the, what I've seen from this team so far is – Physically, we can play anyone. That that isn't something I'm worried about. But this team seems to get in, seems to get in their head a lot, and that's been a major concern of mine. So if they can avoid that, I think we'll be you know in good shape going into the series, and it will just have to be you know whoever you know may the best man win. But my my worry is that oh you know this is the finals. It's going to just be another you know mental hurdle that they're going to have to get over, like the Eastern Conference Finals has been for them for so long with this young core. Yeah, and, you know, like you said, I mean, we've made the the Celtics have made the Eastern Conference Finals, what, you know, this is like the fourth time in five, like six years, I think. Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of a mental thing. It kind of feels like sometimes where, you know, they should be able to get past a team, you know, for like the example, the bubble, you know, they're the better team, but they just can't pull it out. And, you know, I kind of agree with that in a sense, but you know, you also kind of have to look at outside of, you know, the main core of Golden State. It's kind of a lot of people on the Warriors first time in the finals, too. So, true, yeah. you know, it's going to be interesting to look at because honestly, I, I would give it I would credit Ime Udoka with kind of, you know, keeping the Celtics on track because, you know, like you said, there are times where it kind of looks like they're just out of it and they're in their own heads and they're just, you know, not playing the way that they know how to play. And Ime Udoka has been able to kind of reel them back in and kind of be able to get them focused again and, you know, all coming down to one common goal, which is pretty much winning the championship. And it is kind of going to be interesting to see because, in my opinion, it kind of looks like the Celtics and the Warriors kind of play the same brand of basketball. 
Yeah. You know, it's not like super physical on Golden State, but they do have guys that can play super physical, like, you know, Draymond and Kevon Looney and, you know, all of their rookies and Andrew Wiggins, all the guys that they have, you know, they play pretty physical defense just like the Celtics do. Yeah. And it's kind of going to be interesting to see, you know, the fact that they can, the Celtics have so many versatile defenders that they can throw onto guys like Steph and Clay. So, It'll just kind of be interesting to see what they do in the NBA Finals if they do face the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, and if they do luckily uh, take care of business in Game 6 on Friday, which we obviously do hope that they do. Uh, if they are to do it, that would be obviously great. And then, you know, as you spoke, uh, you know, you know, as you've been uh, saying, you know, kind of a lot, uh, Ime Adoka, his influence on this team has been tremendous. I mean... You know, it's been night and day from the difference of what Brad Stevens was. And listen, I don't think Brad Stevens was necessarily a bad coach. I think he's more of a college coach. And, you know, he unfortunately, you know, wasn't able to, you know, just put that aside and kind of take that take that mentality and, you know, be and kind of, you know, attack the needs of these of these young guys. I think he was still kind of, you know operating like a college coach he's doing the recruiting process he's kind of you know acting like he's still at butler which you know when we were developing that young team with the bridge celtics with isaiah thomas and those young guys that actually kind of helps because it was like all right you know we have a bunch of guys who necessarily weren't always top of the line guys obviously that doesn't include tatum brown smart but you know some of the younger role player guys guys like jake crowder uh people like that who were here it was like all right you know, we need to really develop a unit here. And Brad Stevens was good at doing that. And it led us at the Eastern Conference Finals of 2017. Now that we're at this point, we need to, I feel like, you know, with Ime Adoka, he was able to just, you know, I think get this team right in the head. And that is the difference you're seeing here to where I think, you know, had this still been Brad Stevens' team, I think that, you know, the mistakes that the, the mistakes this team has made during the series would compound on each other and we might be getting bounced right now. But because of Ime Adoka's presence, it's just been, you know, night and day. Yeah, and, you know, like you say, Brad Stevens was not a bad coach. No. I just don't think he was the right coach for what this team needed. Yeah. You know, if you want to look back at another example with the Golden State Warriors, Mark Jackson was their coach. He was a great coach. Absolutely. Steve Kerr was just the right coach that the Warriors needed. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's all about fit, and it's all about finding the right guy. And, you know, credit to Ime Udoka because earlier on in the year, you know, some people were wanting him fired yeah. after the 18 and 21 starts. So, you know, the fact that he's been able to find, you know, you know, he's been able to find his style. He's been able to find his voice. And that's kind of one thing that I think Brad Stevens was missing was just his voice after, you know, the bubble run last season. It just kind of felt like his voice was just kind of being lost in the crowd. So, yeah, the no, fact he, that he made he had, Udoka's... He had, he had basically lost the team. And I, I mean, not in a bad way. I mean, I think they still respect him, but, you know, he kind of just became a church mouse and. You know, I remember there was a scene, there was a part during the bubble where uh, I forget what it was, but he was mic'd up and they and they had him like in the huddle and he just seemed like he, he just seemed so mild manner. And he was like, OK, guys, uh, we got to like just, uh, you know, run this play right here. And he just seemed like completely, you know, empty inside. So I think Ime has a lot more drive and, you know, is willing to get in guys faces, which I do appreciate more. Uh, but like, like you said, people wanted Ime possibly fired after the 18 and 21 start. And then obviously Jalen Brown has, you know, the now famous tweet, the energy is about to shift, uh, for you, what, what, what really was the big energy shift with this team? You know, obviously, you know, them winning the basketball games, that's going to do it. But, you know, what do you think really, you know, influenced them to get to this point they're at right now? Honestly, well, if you want to say it was R.J. Barrett hitting a game winner over them and them thinking, damn, we just lost to the Knicks. We can't actually have that. But uh, I, in all honesty, I think they just started listening to Ime Udoka. They just started buying in. They just started playing as like a team because in the beginning of the season, I remember just watching the team and it pretty much just felt like last year part two at yeah. the start of the year where it was the same thing. You know, nothing looked different. You know, granted, it was a new coach. It was going to be a new style. It was going to take time. They did not start out very well. And the fact that, you know, after that, they were able to just all basically collectively as a team start playing, you know, the way that Ime Udoka kind of wanted them to play, where it was passing the ball, you know, and playing elite defense. And, you know, look what happened. Jason Tatum went from a guy where, 
you think that he can be a superstar if he can learn how to pass to he is now a superstar who is able to facilitate and able to find the right pass. And, you know, Marcus Smart's our defensive player of the year. Robert Williams made all defensive team. You know, Jalen Brown should have been an all-star. And it's just kind of crazy to see everyone being able to, you know, basically buy into one system and play as a team. And I think that's kind of the most important thing that the Celtics kind of found when it came to, you know, making the run that they're on right now. Yeah. I mean, they've been, you know, they obviously had, you know, an incredible run down the stretch. Uh, You know, I think the defensive presence for this team has just been awesome. I saw, you know, some, some guy at ESPN, he made just, I think he had a much bigger point that he was trying to make, but I think he was getting cut off and he, he made a, he made a statement about like the Celtics defense and he, and he goes, you know, to have a really good defensive team, you need to really surround yourself with some defenders. And I was like, what is this guy saying? So I, I understand that he was, pro- he was probably do- trying to say, oh, get really physical in your face, guys, guys with, you know, a high motor endurance, but it just sounded like so funny the way he said it. But obviously this team defensively has been, you know, immaculate. We've been, you know, I think every one of our starters got uh, all defensive votes. So, you know, that was obviously great for us. Uh, the other thing too, which I think has been instrumental for this team uh, was Marcus Smart realizing his role. And, you know, he realized it and it rewarded him greatly with the defensive player of the year uh, nod. But, you know, coming into this year, you know, Marcus Smart had made comments of saying, oh, yeah, I'm like the number three option uh, on this team. Like, I'm the I'm like the third wing of this uh, of this big three. And I was like, Marcus, with, you know, you know, in all fairness, like you've been a great addition to this team. We love what you've been here, but you're not the third part of this big three. It's a it's a dynamic duo between Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and you're a great piece on the side. And I think once Smart realized that, he, you know, he understood, all right, I got to feed these guys in the situation that, that, that they're open. I'll do what I have to do and kind of settle back a little bit, you know, become a defensive stopper, which he's always been. And I think that really was a big influence on this team as well. Yeah, and Marcus Smart's impact has been kind of insane when it comes to yeah. how much he's been able to develop. Because if you think about it, you know, Smart's always been there. He was there when Isaiah Thomas was there. He was there when Kyrie was there. He was there when Kemba Walker was there. You know, he tried playing the role he best he could. But when the Celtics gave him the keys to the point guard spot saying, okay, it's your time to be the point guard, you know, show us what you have. And, you know, when it came down to him becoming the true point guard that the Celtics needed, he was able to become that. And I think that goes all the credit in the world to him that he was able to change his mentality with the rest of the team. And, you know, like we said, it made him the defensive player of the year, as well as I think right now is leading the playoffs and assist who's ever left in the playoffs right now. But, but yeah, so it's just kind of crazy to see how far Marcus smart has come from, you know, a guy that might be able to do something and might, and just known for his defense and might be able to develop something on the offensive end to, you know, someone who's basically instrumental and, you know, to this offense. Yeah. I mean, he's been awesome for us. Uh, what, what was I thinking? Uh, you know, as you know, things have moved forward with the team, I, you know, was kind of questioning whether, you know, Marcus Smart would fit with this team going forward. He does. He understands his role now. And I think because he got rewarded with that defensive player of the year with the defensive player of the year award, I think he realizes, oh, I can play the style of basketball and still be rewarded for it. And then and you know, he he now knows, all right, I don't need to be the Kyrie Irving of this team, but me but be something closer to what the prime Rajon Rondo of this team was when they when the Celtics won their championship back in 08. So I think he realizes, you know, oh all right, I can do that and still be an effective member of this team. All right, I'm gonna go do that because I'm gonna get rewarded for it. So that was something that I think he was kind of hung up on for a long time and thought, oh, I need to be like the third you know, the third part of this big three kind of, you know, really be this scoring contributor, do all this, take all these shots. And now he realizes, oh, if I'm just a facilitator, I get the ball to these guys, I'm still going to be looked upon favorably. So I love that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this is kind of what the Celtics needed. They needed this true point guard kind of thing because we've been saying forever, Celtics need a point guard. Celtics need a guy that can pass, you know. Yes. Great. Kemba Walker's great. He can't stay healthy. You know, the Celtics needed somebody like Marcus Smart, and Marcus Smart was able to become the player that the Celtics needed. 
No, yeah. I mean, Kemba Walker, I was, you know, the broadcast crew was usually just talking about like what color suit he was wearing that night. I was like, Jesus Christ, not again. Uh, It was was always like, it was always a pain. It wasn't even like really his fault either. It's just like he could, I think he got in, like he got injured like right before the bubble, I think, and then just never was able to come back from it, which kind of sucked because, you know, Kemba Walker was super talented. Absolutely. And it just didn't work out. Yeah, no, it just didn't materialize here. Something that really did materialize in Boston, though, which I didn't think was going to be be the case, uh, actually involved the trade of Kemba Walker, and that was uh, Al Horford. You know, he came back into this crew, and, you know, when that trade went down, a lot of people in the Boston sports media criticized it. Everyone was going like, oh, my God, Brad Stevens gets into the front office role, uh, and he's just bringing the band back together. People were joking, oh, is he going to bring back Jonas Jarebko, too? And everyone was kind of having a field day with it. Everyone was saying, oh, is Gigi coming back? Like, you know, no no one really knew what, uh, what was going on with Brad Stevens. And, you know, it felt like he was just kind of, you know, bringing his guys back into the mix and, you know, almost was more of like a spite move at Danny Ainge, but that couldn't be further than the case with uh, how Al Horford's performed. I mean, I didn't think he had much left in, left in the tank. Uh, that is not the case. He has been awesome for this team in the playoffs. I mean, I read off some of the stats at the beginning of the show. I think he had 16 and seven. Uh, you know, people have been making the comparisons uh, recently of saying that he's like the Draymond Green of this team. And, you know, while I think they're very different kind of players, I definitely understand the comparison. Yeah, you know, they're both the leaders of their team. They're kind of the voice. They're the veteran presence that, you know, players, the younger players on the team go to lean on. And I kind of remember, you know, when Brad Stevens made this trade and it kind of felt like it was destined for Al Horford to come back just because of, you know, just the contract situation and everything. Honest and truthfully, I was happy with the trade. I was happy Al Horford came back. I mean, it kind of felt like the best version of Al Horford was when he was on the Celtics. And no, that's true. So I was super excited for him to come back. I mean, well, I was also excited we got Moses Brown, but, you know, that didn't end up happening. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, honestly, I don't think anyone could have expected Al Horford to be doing what he's doing right now. No. And you know, he's been just as important to this playoff run as Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown has been. Absolutely. So, and I 100% agree with you with the Draymond Green comparison. I think that's a pretty good comparison for Al Horford because, you know, he's just the voice. He's kind of the leader, you know, the guy that you can lean on in the locker room, but it's always also going to be able to call you out and fire you up and, you know, just make sure that you're playing to the best of your ability. Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that he's doing what he can do at his age is awesome. I mean, I swear to God, if you get Al Horford in a catch-and-shoot three-point situation, I don't think I've ever seen him miss. Like, if, Oh, if yeah, you, he's insane. If you think about it, you get him on the corner shooting a three-pointer, I can't – I don't think I, I've ever seen him miss. And, you know, knock on wood that he's able to, you know, do that going forward. But he's always just so consistent. Like, I see him just – I see him just get the shot and, you know, take it. I'm like, oh. Buckets like I don't even think about it at this point, just because he's been that awesome with the that awesome with the ball. So uh, not just as a shooter, but down low too. The fact that he's still able to battle like that is really impressive. I know when he first came here, he was kind of like the Embiid stopper for us, and you know we used him in that situation. And I didn't necessarily know if he was going to be able to do that going forward. Obviously, we didn't have to face Embiid this series, but uh, you know things this things this year have been you know very well for this team. Definitely. And, you know, we kind of also, we always knew that he was the Embiid stopper and the Giannis stopper. Yes. But, you know, I don't think anyone could have predicted at 35, he was still going to be able to be no. the Giannis <laughs> stopper no. and the Kevin Durant and the Bam Adebayo and the Jimmy Butler. And I mean, it's just kind of crazy. And I think it all goes back to the fact when he was on the Thunder, you know, I think most, some people forget they had to shut him down because he was winning too many games for the Thunder. <laughs> they were literally just writing on the injury report old, old because they didn't want to win games and Al Horford was winning them games. And so, you know, he had all the time in the world to rest. And honestly, I think that might be the reason why that he play, is playing super well with the Celtics this year. That, that was kind of something I was thinking about because I'm like, you know, he didn't play many games last year. So he had all the time in the world to, you know, kind of rest and get ready and get prepared for this year. So that's kind of something that I think is kind of interesting when it comes to Al Horford. You know, you make a good point with that. I mean, I I think it was, uh, I think it's Anna Horford. That's his sister, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a sister. Yeah, so I've been seeing uh, her on Twitter, and I, I, I think she ended up saying like, 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 oh, Al staying with this team for the rest of his career, and it's just like, I mean, at this point, he should because he's never had this level of success elsewhere, except maybe with the Hawks, you know, in his earlier years. But you know, it, you know, in this later, in the later stage of his later stages of his career, it just hasn't materialized elsewhere. Philly just just didn't work out, and then OKC didn't work out either. So. Uh, I mean, you know, as as things move forward, I saw I think it was Dan Greenberg. He was on Twitter and I think he ended up saying, you know, Al Horford just should should honestly just never retire. The Celtics should just pay him to take on the Udonis Haslam role of this team. I mean, Udonis Haslam is what I think 41, 42 years old now, possibly at this point. And he's still like a rostered member of the Miami Heat. He doesn't really suit up for games anymore. He's basically uh, on the end of that bench now. But what they use him for is just as a veteran presence, they use him as just the leader of this core. And I think that's, I think, you know, honestly, that's just what the, I think that's just what the Celtics need out of Al Horford now. I mean, you know, you know, once he, you know, depending on, you know, how much longer he can play, whenever it is determined that, you know, he doesn't have the physical ability to play anymore. I feel like he needs to be a part of this coaching staff just because of how, you know, great of an influence he's been on these young players. Yeah. And I mean, I'm hoping the Celtics bring Al Horford back after this year. You know, I kind of want to, I want to see Al Horford end his career in Boston just because of everything that's happened. And, you know, I agree with you. Honestly, I think Al Horford can make a pretty good coach if he's ever a coach because, you know, the way that he's able to inspire players to play and the way that, you know, he probably knows a whole lot about coaching. Oh, yeah. So he can, honestly, if he's part of the staff moving forward, I would not be against that at all. No, not at all. I mean, he's been awesome. And I, I, I'm, I, I'm eating my words on it. I was not sure about, about them bringing him back. I thought he was going to be fine when they brought him back. I thought, you know, he, he would definitely show some age, but it has been the opposite. He's looked as good as ever. So hopefully they can continue, continue that down the stretch. Uh, before we do go, uh, though, Ian, I want to switch things over into the MLB. Uh, and talk about uh, a player who I did not, another player who I didn't think was going to be, uh, you know, turning things on and, you know, getting and being as effective as he, as they have been so far. And that is Trevor Story. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I was criticizing him for his atrocious start in Boston. And frankly, it was granted. He was awful here to start the season. You know, he couldn't hit his way out of a paper bag and it was terrible. Uh, but now he's just been absolutely unconscious at the plate. I don't get it. It's, you know, been two extremes with this guy to where, you know, he freaking couldn't hit, couldn't hit water on a beach to now. I mean, he's just like, you know, belting at home runs every night. I mean, he had, he had a three homer game, you know, just a couple games back, uh, you know, seven RBIs in that contest. And then literally the next day hits a grand slam in the first inning. And I'm like, Oh my God, you know, he's been absolutely incredible. Hit a, he hit a three run home run the other night. And then, you know, has just been really consistent so far. So, I mean, what what have your thoughts been on Trevor's story? Honestly, I mean, I've been high on Trevor's story his entire career ever since he started in Colorado. So Trevor's story has been one of my favorite players to watch in yeah. the MLB for a while. And I was extremely excited when the Red Sox got him because I knew how good he was going to be. I didn't think it was just the course field effect. I think he was a legitimately talented player. And, you know, I think the reason why he had such a slow start was because, A, he signed super late into spring training, and spring training was already short already. You know, he had like 11 at-bats in spring training in general, and then he had a kid, and then he had an ankle injury. So everything compounding on itself, you know, I think that's kind of what happened with his slow start was just everything all happening at once and just him not being able to actually physically you know, get comfortable with the team yet. And honestly, I think this is kind of the Trevor story that the Red Sox paid for because he has just been on a tear. It just kind of feels like every time he's up at the plate, he might hit a home run right now. That's kind of how good he is. And, you know, this is kind of what happens with Trevor story when he's hot. This is kind of what Trevor story is. And this is what he's known for. I mean, I mean, when he started his career in Colorado, I mean, I forget he had like, you know, like what, like seven home runs or something like within like his yeah, first his couple first, of days. His first game, he had two home runs off of Zach Greinke on opening day. Yeah. Like, I mean, he was awesome. Crazy. So, I mean, this is like, he, these are the hot streaks that he is known for. So, and he's obviously a consistent player after that as well. I mean, he's able to, you know, usually maintain a decent stretch 
afterwards. And those were during his seasons in Colorado. Obviously, you know, we saw the worst of the worst with Trevor Story, and now we're seeing the best of the best. In your opinion, which version is gonna is closer to the one that we're gonna see down, you know, down the rest of the season? I obviously he's gonna cool off at some point. You're not gonna be able to continue this, you know, insane steroid era level of production for the, <laughs> for an entire season. I mean, no, he's having like a Barry Bonds, like you know, like he's got a Barry right Bonds now. run right now. Yeah. Oh my god, he's been insane. So I mean, obviously he will cool down and he will, you know, come back down to earth. But in your opinion, you know. Is it going to be closer to the struggling version that you've seen, or is it going to be, you know, more of this, you know, high flying, you know, ridiculousness that we've seen so far, which, which is closer to the reality of what we're going to see. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, truthfully, I don't think he's going to be as bad. I don't think he can be as bad as he was earlier in the year. I just don't think that's possible. Honestly, (laughs) like it's going to be really hard. to the Trevor story we're seeing right now. And obviously he's not going to be hitting a home run, you know, every other at bat the way that he's been going right now, but I still think he's going to be able to get on base. He's going to be able to contribute. Obviously we know how good he is in the field when it comes to defense. And, you know, if he can just continue playing the way that he knows how to play and the way that he's capable of playing, I think the Red Sox have a super good chance of turning the season around you know, coming from a terrible start and turning it around into something where they can either even make the playoffs. Yeah, I think at this point, uh, the emergence of the Trevor Story is something that we needed badly because, you know, not only has Story, not only had Story been in a terrible hole, I mean, just this team in general outside of guys like Bogarts and Martinez uh, re- relatively had just been atrocious so the fact that we're getting another guy and you know that's the premier free agent that we brought in the fact that he's ready to go now i think that might be you know a really good piece to you know rally the team and say hey you know i was struggling too but i figured things out we got to get going and you know hopefully they can you know push on from there yeah and like i remember i can't remember if i heard this on the radio or i watched a video on it or something but when trevor story like struck out four times i think it was against otani in the angels series and he was coming into the media like, you know, he was after the game, he was supposed to talk to the media and he just spent like two hours straight in the cage, just looking at film and hitting the ball. Yeah. And, you know, that's a testament to him, you know, and his work ethic, you know, trying to be the best player that he can be. And the fact that he's able to, you know, turn it on and be able to kind of silence everyone that was kind of crapping on him in the beginning of the year is pretty good to see. And I'm, Hope Trevor Story can continue the success. And, you know, if he has a Barry Bonds type season, I mean, what are you going to say? But I mean, if he has a Barry Bonds type season, it kind of puts things uh, more in. It kind of, you know, makes people wonder a lot more about what the future of uh, Xander Bogarts is looking like. Because, you know, at the start of the season, when Trevor Story was struggling as bad as he did, I was like, this is the perfect situation for Xander Bogarts. Because, you know, he was, you know, he was trying to get the, he was trying to get the Red Sox to bring him in. Uh, You know, he struggles like this and, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, now he can approach the Red Sox and say, hey, uh, your possible replacement for me isn't doing too hot. Uh, how are we feeling about that contract extension? And I thought that that was definitely going to be the case for him. With him now heating up, I don't know what the situation is going to be with Xander Bogarts right now. I know, you know, I've said this many times. I I think I was watching, uh, there was like a snippet from Felger and Maz, I guess, where uh, they showed Trevor Story during a spring training. And he ended up saying he was talking about, oh, yeah, I'm ready to play second base this year. And, you know, people were and they kind of dissected just the two words this year and were saying, all right, what does he mean by that? Like, is there something more behind that? Was that a Freudian slip? And I don't know, maybe the Red Sox kind of gave him like, you know, a secret kind of like backroom deal and said, hey, listen, you're going to play second this year. We're going to get your elbow right. And then we're going to move you back to your natural position at shortstop. And Xander's going to be out of here. So. I don't know if there's anything going on with that. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Honestly, I don't even really know what to think about with this Bogart situation anymore because, honestly, truthfully, when they were struggling, it kind of felt like, you know, this is just going to be another superstar the Red Sox have that they're going to trade away to another team. Yeah. And it honestly felt like his Bogarts was going to get traded at the deadline. That's how bad the Sox were at the time. Oh, and yeah. obviously they weren't going to be that bad the entire season, but – you know, it just kind of comes down to one of those things where I think it just kind of all depends on what Bogarts wants to do, because if I'm the Red Sox, I have to pay 
Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers, you know, JD Martinez is going to be a free agent soon. So, you know, they kind of have to make tough decisions on the core that they have currently. And, you know, I would obviously love for them to bring back Bogarts. I think Bogarts is super important to this team, but if I had to choose between like him and Rafael Devers, I think I would have to try to pay Rafael Devers more than Xander Bogarts. As Like I said, as much as I love Bogarts and, you know, the Red Sox have guys in their system right now that are, you know, pretty good. You know, they got guys, Jeter Downs in Worcester. He's super good. Marcelo Meyer. He's like their best prospect. Marcelo Mayer, I think will be very good, but I think he's still five years or so out. Uh, Jeter Downs, though, has kind of struggled, though. Yeah, I mean, he's been better this year than he was last year by a mile. I think yeah. he's, he's been a lot more comfortable in AAA this year. And, you know, the fact that Jeter Downs, he has a lot of talent, and I think that he could come up next year if, you know, he continues. If he, you know, if he plays super well at the end of this year, with Worcester, I think he can come up and he can play, you know, pretty good and he can be a pretty solid replacement and you know he can play second base or shortstop and so can Trevor Story so you know I think it's it just kind of it's kind of feels like one of those things where you don't know what's going to happen but it's kind of hard to predict because you don't know what's going to happen so I'm, I'm hoping the Sox can bring back Bogarts but if it doesn't happen and Story can play shortstop again I mean I guess I can't complain too too much I, I really feel like this. I feel like I really feel like the Red Sox need to bring back Bogarts. I mean, oh, yeah, I think they uh, do too. I mean, I mean, not 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 like wanting to. And I think obviously I probably would lean towards, uh, you know, Devers over Bogarts just because of, you know, the young the youngness factor in there. How And, you know, I think the potential that he has. But with Xander Bogarts, I look at him having the same amount of importance for this team performing well as I do Alex Cora. I mean, look at how this team, you know, fell apart in, you know, 2020 when Ron Radicke was at the helm. And obviously that was a shortened season. There were some other things that, that impacted them there too. But when Alex Cora has been at the helm of this team, minus 2019, it's just something has clicked with them and they have been just, you know, amazing with, you know, amazing with him at the helm. I look at Xander Bogarts with that same, you know, kind of presence. I mean, he comes in there and he just commands this team to go out there and perform. And I feel like if they get rid of him, you're going to see a huge freaking drop off. Yeah. And I mean, it's going to, it's, it's going to be kind of like a world series kind of almost like hangover effect or just like, you know, when a star player leaves or gets traded, it's just going to demoralize this group. And it's, uh, you know, similar to when Mookie Betts left, I, it, it kind of left a hole in this team for a while. And I feel like, you know, they're definitely going to need to, uh, you know, figure some stuff out before, uh, you know, it would definitely take, you know, more than just a season for them to adjust uh, before they could get themselves right again. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about because they just almost made the World Series last year, but the Red Sox are supposed to be in a rebuild right now. They're supposed to be kind of, you know, they're not expected to win the World Series by ownership right now, it kind of feels like. And, you know, so it's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens because, you know, like you say, Bogarts is probably just as important to this team as Alex Cora is, and I think that's 100% true, but... I don't know. It just, it, I, I, it's kind of hard to think about, honestly. I, I don't really know what I can say about it because I, I really hope they bring Bogarts back and I hope that they're able to bring, you know, Devers into a long term extension as well. But, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where we just kind of have to wait and see. And, you know, yeah. he is a he is a Scott Boris client. So you always, you know, know that that's going to be difficult. So, oh, yeah, no, it's all, it's always a challenge. And Scott Boris is the agent. I mean, he's always going to just try to get every last dollar out of you. Uh, the only, the, the, the thing that just frustrates me, though, and I've said this on other shows, too, is that, you know, we're not a team like the Kansas City Royals where we don't have the funds to pay these guys. We're the Boston Red Sox. We're the third most wealthy. We're the third wealthiest team in all of Major League Baseball. And I get that we're trying to, you know, reestablish our financials and figure stuff out. And I understand that when, you know, it came for us to pay Mookie Betts and we inevitably trade him, we were in a very bad spot financially. And I understand that, you know, had we had we paid Mookie, guys like Xander and guys like Rafi were going to be out the door just because we just weren't going to have the money to pay them. So I understood the idea of why Bloom was brought in. And, you know, it was like, hey, first move you're going to have to make is trade Mookie Betts just because, you know, we have to re- really reestablish our budget and get things back under control. But I thought, all right, we'll lose Mookie, but we'll be able to keep guys like Rafi and Xander Bogarts. That was the idea that I had behind that. And 
now that that's still up in the air, I'm just like, what the hell is going on with these guys? I don't understand the direction of this team. So I'm hoping that, you know, they're just playing hardball with him and eventually they're going to be like, all right, here's the contract you deserve. And, you know, Xander signs on the dotted line and it's all good, but I'm still a little concerned. Yeah. And I mean, I think you, you bring a guy like uh, Heim Bloom in to, you know, almost do what he's doing in Tampa where, you know, find the diamonds in the rough, you know, make this team competitive, you know, just make them, you know, good enough to where maybe something crazy happens and they can make a world series run. And that's what kind of happened last season. And it's just kind of going to be interesting to see what they do moving forward because, you know, you really don't know what's going to happen when it comes to Bogarts. And, you know, I think it's important to re-sign him. And, you know, you have to extend Rafael Devers. Devers is one of the best players in baseball right now. The fact that he, the way that he's been able to swing and honestly, the fact that his defense has improved, you know, even a little bit is we'll we'll take it. We'll take it. Honestly. Yeah, we'll take it. It's a lot better than what it was. So, you know, so it's just one of those things where, you know, you got to make tough decisions like this when you have a core like that. And if, you know, the ownership doesn't want to spend the money, you know, there's only so much you can really do about it. So, you know, it's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens. Also, I think it is kind of funny that Hein Bloom comes in and the first thing that he has to do is, hey, trade the best player that you've had since like Ted Williams on your team. You it's know, like, trade your fran- your future franchise player, you know, just trade him. You know, yeah. it's your first move as a GM. Just, just hey, man, trade him. <laughs> hey, man, welcome. Hey, man, welcome to the job. First, uh, first thing you have to do is put a target on your back. Uh, yeah, luck. yeah. Yeah, good luck. Have have fun. But yeah, no, yeah def- I mean, def- I feel like Heim Bloom's done, you know, as good a job as you can with, you know, what he's been able to, you know, kind of turn the Red Sox into for, you know, we, they didn't have any expectations after the 2020 season. So yeah. the fact that he's been able to find guys like Kike Hernandez, Alex Verdugo has been super good. You know, uh, he's not on the team anymore, but when they had Hunter Renfro, Hunter Renfro was super good. You know, the fact that he's been able to do that and kind of build up the farm system again has been kind of super important for them. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the team building that Heim has done has been, you know, decent so far. The only issue I have is that, you know, when we've been in situations to, you know, really move ahead and, you know, take advantage of stuff, it seems like he's been kind of complacent. I mean, just think of the trade dip. Think of the trade deadline this year where we really didn't do or trade deadline last year where we really didn't do too much and kind of stood by it. And you know what? At at the end of the day, it did take us over into, you know, it did take us to the ALCS. We were able able to have success there. And, you know, I'm grateful that, you know, we didn't pull the trigger on someone that, you know, wasn't worth it. But at the end of the day, I remember immediately after that trade deadline, you know, we kind of fell into a little bit of a rut and, you know, lost, lost a good couple of games. So, the only issue I have with Heim is just that, all right, recognize just kind of understanding the feel of the team and just being able to say, all right, you know, this team's in need of a guy right now. You know, they, you know, they've been playing really, really well. Let me reward them. Like that, that's the only thing I'm kind of saying. Like, yeah. I feel like, I feel like they need that incentive to kind of keep going. So if, you know, if he goes out at the deadline and gets a bullpen guy or just gets someone like to say, Hey, like, I know you guys are playing well, I'm going to get someone for the stretch run. I, I feel like that could do, I feel like that could be really impactful. I mean, he did that with Kyle Schwarber and that was awesome. I mean, you know, was probably the best move of the deadline for us. I mean, you know, it was very underrated, but I feel like getting some pitching help or getting some other help at the deadline, it's going to, it'll make a, it'll make a really big impact for, uh, for as, as we go along. Yeah. Like another really solid, either starting pitcher or another, you know, kind of solid shutdown bullpen guy is something the Red Sox desperately need. Absolutely. And they've been able to I mean, they've been able to kind of skate by with guys like, you know, Rich Hill. Michael Walker played really well before he was injured. You know, Tanner Houck's been, you know, pretty okay. Garrett Whitlock has been able to become a starter. Granted, last game wasn't that great, but he's been, you know, great outside of that. And, you know, you got other guys in the bullpen that are kind of just kind of random cast-offs like John Schreiber and uh, Paul Danish, who just kind of come out of nowhere and just kind of, you know, pitch as well as you can from, you know, just kind of just going out there to say like, hey, you know, we need this from you. Just kind of, you know, just get us out of this. And they've been able to pitch pretty well. And, you know, I think another – I think you can always use more starting pitching because you know how good the offense is going to be. The offense is going to be good. They can win you games, but some you just need that another guy when it comes to the starting rotation. And 
I think that's why they didn't go out last year was because they were thinking Chris Sale was going to be that guy. And, you know, it just kind of didn't happen that way. But, you know, if they can get Chris Sale back and healthy whenever he does end up coming back, and if they could get another guy that can, you know, just solidify the back end of a starting rotation, he doesn't even have to be an ace. It just has to be a guy who can just go out there, he can eat innings, and, you know, he's just going to be dependable. And that's kind of all the Sox kind of need right now when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. Well, Ian, we're going to have to kind of wait and see from there. Uh, you know, uh, we're probably gonna end, we're probably going to be ending the show, uh, you know, coming up here. So, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, it was a super fun time. Anytime. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, we are now down to the wire, which means that we're going to wrap up what we talked about this episode today and send you guys on your way. Uh, obviously, Mr. Ian and Angelo joined us on the show. I just thanked him for coming on again. But, you know, once again, man, you know, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, today, we talked about the Celtics game five victory over the Miami Heat uh, and how they're going to fare in game six against them. Uh, as we return to Boston, the Celtics are currently favored by nine points and are a game away for their, from their first NBA Finals appearance since 2010. Uh, we then at the end of the show jumped over into MLB news and talked about Trevor Story catching fire and just being electric for this Red Sox team. Uh, he has completely turned it around and, you know, is looking as good as ever. Uh, we also we talked about how the Red Sox are going to fare down the stretch and how, you know, things are going to come together for them as we move forward. Uh, you know, it's been a really good show. Ian, really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything that you kind of want to personally shout out yourself? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, your personal TikTok, uh, you know, Instagram, you know, anything like that. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on TikTok. It's uh, I and Angelo. It's basically the first letter of my first name and my last name. That's my social media basically everywhere. So make sure you guys follow that. You can follow uh, BSML Celtics, kind of run a podcast over there as well. And just kind of talk about the Celtics breaking down kind of everything that they do as well. So if I had to shout anything out, that would kind of be what I would shout out. Absolutely, man. Hey, definitely go check that out, you guys. Uh, Make sure you go check that out. Uh, Also, if you're not listening, if you're not following down to the wire at this point, what are you guys doing? We're available everywhere you guys can stream podcasts, whether that be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. You can also watch the video stream to this on, on our YouTube channel, and you can find all the links in our bio in our Instagram at down dot to the wire again at down dot to the wire on Instagram. Thank you guys so much for watching. And from down to the wire, I'm Brian Costa. I'm Ian and Angelo. And we hope you guys have a great day. Take care and peace out. WJMF Radio.